Werner von Braun sat in his office at Marshall Space Flight Center, a copy of the New York Times in hand. He and his staff had been hard at work on the Saturn rocket that was intended to propel a crew of Americans to the moon, but he always found some time to catch up on the news. He snapped the paper open and began to skim the headlines, his gaze eventually settling onto a pair of dark eyes that met his own. Reading quickly, he began to digest the main points of the article. Surprise seized him. That man looking back from the paper was none other than his chief rival, Sergei Kurlyov. There was the man he had spent so long wondering about, had expended so much energy trying to learn of, the man about whom Von Braun really only knew from his works. He was brilliant. That was undeniable. He had kept the Soviets comfortably ahead of the Americans throughout most of the space race, though that lead was rapidly closing. Always cloaked in mystery, the Soviets had gone to great lengths to keep any and all information about their chief designer out of the public eye. So what was he doing in a newspaper? As Von Braun continued to read, his shock deepened. Something very important had happened. The space race had changed. Welcome to Episode 30 of Frontier of Infinity, The Sickle's Edge. Last time, we covered the incredible and harrowing flight of Gemini 8, which saw Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott pull off the first-ever orbital docking maneuver, though the mission turned dangerous when a malfunction in the capsule's attitude control system started the Gemini and the Agena docking target it was mated with rolling. A frightful period stretched out as Armstrong and Scott raced to control the spin before they both lost consciousness or damage was done to their spacecraft. But they managed to get the situation under control, even though it meant the mission had to be cut short. Still, it was a triumph for NASA, and marked another guidestone on the road to the moon. Today, we're going to shift our focus east, into the Soviet Union, and catch up with Sergei Kurilov, as well as the designers and technicians of OKB-1. They have projects of their own in the works, but storm clouds are gathering for the Soviet space program. After the cancellation of the Voshod program after only two flights back in 1965, the Soviets had not flown another crewed mission. There were a number of robotic flights, some of which we covered in our previous episode entitled Electronic Eyes. But the real meat of the space race did not lay in the ability to throw cameras around distant worlds. Rather, it lay in the capacity to land humans on one very specific one, Earth's own moon. For years, Werner von Braun and his staff had been hard at work on the Saturn rocket, which was intended to serve as the main engine for NASA's Project Apollo. 
One of the world's foremost rocketeers, Von Braun enjoyed a veritable fount of money and resources which flowed freely from U.S. government coffers. While there had not been the same exuberant support come from the Soviet authorities. Thus far, Sergei Kurlyov had been the head of the Soviet space program, the so-called chief designer. It was he who had been behind the launch of the first artificial satellite, the first dog in space, and then the first human being. Like von Braun, he had long been focused on creating a rocket powerful enough to propel a manned spacecraft to the moon, a design he called the N-1. But there were other rocket designers in the USSR, all clamoring for the limited pool of resources the Soviet government was willing to dole out for space projects. A messy falling out with an erstwhile friend, Valentin Glushko, had weakened Kurlyov's position in this struggle for resources. But nevertheless, he managed to win approval for his N1 design through sheer tenacity and force of will. This rocket would be paired with a new capsule as well, the Soyuz, one which was much more robust than any spacecraft the Soviets had ever attempted to build before. Werner von Braun had his Saturn V and the upcoming Apollo spacecraft. Kurlyov had the N-1 and the Soyuz, which he hoped would be ready for a moon mission as early as 1968. It was merely a question of which space program would be able to get their plans off the ground first and successfully. For the Soviets, it seemed that the path to the moon was becoming clear after a long period of confusion. Much of the infighting and the bureaucratic squabbles had been settled. Kurlyov was given the funding he needed to move forward, while the Apollo program was meeting fresh headwinds in the U.S., the Americans had the knowledge base and the industrial capacity they needed to see Von Braun's dream come true. The emergent issue was public support. There was growing resistance among the American people for the massive expenditures required to fund a moon program. On top of that, there were long-present concerns about Von Braun's past as a member of the Nazi party. Not only were huge sums of money being expended on a project that appeared to many among the populace as a fruitless errand for bragging rights, but much of that money was flowing right into the hands of an ex-Nazi, who had played a direct role in building weapons for the Third Reich. A satirist named Tom Lehrer even wrote a song criticizing Von Braun, which became quite popular among the engineer's critics. It called out his past and painted him as a glib opportunist. Still, even despite this resistance, as 1965 stretched out, the Americans surged ahead in the space race, as Project Gemini handed victory after victory to NASA. Kurlyov had nothing with which to directly compete, and thus the Soviets were restrained to robotic probes while work continued on the N-1 and the Soyuz. For a long time, Kurlyov had suffered from health issues, most notably with his heart, and the pressure of running a moon program did his well-being no favors. His physical condition continued to decline as the work progressed and the 1968 deadline loomed nearer. He took to self-medicating with Validol, much to the chagrin of his physician, and admitted to his wife Nina that he felt deeply fatigued. 
He spent a spell in the hospital at one point, Nina sticking by his side. He was even visited by Yuri Gagarin, the first human being in space, and another Soviet cosmonaut named Andrian Nikolaev. This raised Kurlyov's spirits, and Gagarin even gifted his wristwatch to the chief designer when he learned that Kurlyov's had stopped running. He and Nina then took a short vacation to Crimea, but it wasn't long before he was back to work, fighting just as hard to realize his dream of planting a hammer and sickle on the moon. To make things worse, Glushko, once Kurlyov's most trusted engine designer, continued to do all he could to undermine Kurlyov's plans. Joining forces with another rocket engineer named Chelame, Glushko raged that the N1 needed to be largely redesigned, and advocated in favor of Chelame's own UR-700 rocket, which was a direct competitor to the N1. These constant attacks from a former ally weighed heavily on Kurlyov, as he lived in constant fear that Glushko and Chelame's fervor would start to turn heads in the Soviet defense establishment threatening the funding that kept the N-1 project alive. But the work was able to continue, and as the Americans hurled Gemini after Gemini into space, Kurlyov's team and the hundreds of research organizations which contributed to the project had finally produced a mock-up of the Soyuz come autumn. As soon as it was ready, a group of cosmonauts and engineers were invited to visit Baikonur, where they could explore and critique the new spacecraft. Yuri Gagarin was among that group, and as soon as he arrived in the hangar where the model capsule was housed, he noticed that Kurlyov looked ill. When the chief designer was bombarded with requests to explain more about his creation, Gagarin tried to divert attention away, concerned that too much stress would harm Kurlyov. But Kurlyov persisted and delivered a short presentation about the new Soyuz. It truly was a marvel of Soviet engineering. Weighing in at seven tons, it was far larger than the Voshod, and was composed of three sections. It would carry two or three cosmonauts on board, and sported a pair of solar panels which extended like wings off of the sides of the craft to produce power. It was hoped that it would be able to sustain a mission for two full weeks. The Americans proved their ability to pull off a two-week mission with the joint flight of Geminis 6 and 7, on top of the first-ever orbital rendezvous. Of course, Glushko seized on this American victory and spun it into ammunition for further attacks on Kurlyov. But the Soviet program was progressing. Simulators for the Soyuz had been constructed at Star City, and cosmonauts were already training in them. But still, Kurlyov's health continued to decline. He experienced pains in his chest, which he struggled to ignore most of the time. But when he began to experience intestinal bleeding, he was forced to consult a doctor. They found that he had developed a polyp in his colon, one which did not pose a dire threat to his life, but one that needed to be operated on and removed nonetheless. Kurlyov resisted, joking that he just needed another ten years so that he could get his moon project flying. But the doctor was persistent. The operation needed to happen sooner rather than later. It was marked on the calendar for January 1966.
On New Year's Eve, Kurlyov was irritated to have been invited to a party. He wanted nothing more than to keep at work. Every second he spent away from his desk were seconds the Americans were using to further their own plans. But Nina was quick to remind him that there would be state officials in attendance of this celebration, and thus he should go. He acquiesced and accompanied his wife to the gathering. Other prominent members of the Soviet space program were present as well, including Mstislav Keldish, a mathematician and engineer. He and Kurlyov got to talking, and Kurlyov told his colleague about his impending operation, confessing that he was nervous about it, fearful that he wouldn't survive. A few days later, Nina organized a party of her own for some of Kurlyov's colleagues. I can only imagine that Kurlyov suffered through it with a brave face, but he specifically requested that Yuri Gagarin, his old friend, as well as Alexei Leonov, another cosmonaut, stay for a while longer after the other guests had departed. Their conversation reached deep into the night, during which Kurlyov spoke of matters he had never been keen to discuss with anyone ever before. He told the two cosmonauts of his arrest and imprisonment at the hands of the Soviet state, the severe mistreatment he had suffered at the behest of the very regime which he and they served. Gagarin and Leonov were shocked. They had been largely unaware of Kurlyov's past and were taken aback at how faithfully he had served the Soviet state after it had inflicted such grievous harm on him, both mental and physical. What was more, the reason was not readily apparent as to why the chief designer had selected that moment to so thoroughly unburden himself, or why he had chosen them to be his witnesses. Kurlyov continued to work right up to the day he was to be admitted to the hospital. It was January 4th. He stayed locked in his office most of the day, and it was not until quite late that he dragged himself out. Boris Chertok was there when he finally emerged, recalling that Kurlyov, dressed in a long coat and fur hat, lingered in the doorframe for a few moments, looking over his staff with a gentle smile. Chertok and his colleagues did what they could to bolster Kurlyov's spirits, wishing him good health and the best of luck. It's unlikely that their kind words did any good as Chertok later reported that Kurlyov appeared withered and sad as he trudged reluctantly out of the door to face an uncertain future. The next day, Nina rode with him to a hospital in Moscow, where he was to undergo a number of tests before the operation. He had left Vasily Mishin in charge of the design bureau, but Mishin, despite his brilliance as an engineer, had not Kurlyov's knack as an administrator. After just a couple of days of trying to navigate the quagmire of engineering challenges, bureaucrats, and baying managers, Mishin decided to throw in the towel completely. Kurlyov wouldn't abide such foolishness and called Mishin to convince him to stay on. Ministers stay and ministers go, Kurlyov told Mishin. But we stay in our own business. He was successful, and Mishin remained a part of the program. The surgery was finally to go through on January 14th, and Kurlyov said goodbye to his wife the night before. They agreed that she would not come to the hospital that morning, but would rather be there when the anesthetic wore off, 
But on the morning of, Kurlyov was seized by an overpowering desire to speak with his wife. He called her over the phone. Their housekeeper answered and reported that Nina was not at the house. When Kurlyov asked where she was, the housekeeper replied that she was on her way to the hospital to see him against their arrangement. Kurlyov was hopeful that she would arrive before he was taken to the operating ward, but she was too late. She reached the hospital just as he was being taken in. All she could do from that point was to sit and wait. The surgeon who would perform the operation was none other than the Soviet Minister of Health, Dr. Boris Petrovsky. Successfully, he endoscopically removed the polyp, but once it was gone, Kurlyov began to bleed quite severely, and Petrovsky was not able to staunch the flow by conventional means. Fearing something more was at play, Petrovsky made an incision into Kurlyov's abdomen, where he was horrified to discover a large tumor wedged alongside his digestive tract. Petrovsky called for a cancer specialist, and together, the two surgeons began to excise the growth. But still, Kurlyov was bleeding. What had been planned as a three-hour operation had now stretched out to eight hours, a duration for which Kurlyov should have had a breathing tube inserted. But he had failed to inform his medical staff that his jaw had been broken multiple times during his time in the gulag system, and he was unable to open his mouth wide enough for one to be inserted. The surgeons considered performing a tracheotomy instead, but opted for a breathing mask first. When this proved insufficient, they went forward with the tracheotomy, and it was successful. His respiration stabilized, but his already weak heart had now endured an hours-long ordeal, and just half an hour after the surgery concluded, it gave out. Sergei Kurlyov, the chief designer, one of the foremost pioneers on the infinite frontier, flatlined in the operating ward. The medical staff around him leapt into action, fighting as hard as they could to revive him. But there was nothing to be done. Sergei Kurlyov had led a hard life. As a prisoner of the state, forced into hard labor for a crime there's no evidence at all he committed, he was beaten, he was starved, he was left at the mercy of the elements. And as head of the Soviet space program, he had endured unimaginable stress. His litany of health concerns had finally caught him, and what was supposed to be a fairly routine surgery had ended the life of one of the world's greatest rocket engineers. Nina had been beside herself with worry since the procedure had begun to stretch out longer than anticipated. She had received updates from the operating room, but when the final report was delivered, she descended into shock. Dr. Petrovsky reportedly said to her that he could scarcely believe Kurlyov had lived with a heart in such bad condition for so long. It didn't take long for the word to spread throughout the Soviet space community. No one had expected the chief designer to be snatched away from them so suddenly, the man who had been their stalwart leader through the best and worst of times. Nikolai Kamenin, head of cosmonaut training, wrote in his personal journal, quote, It has been three days since he died, and I still do not want to believe that he is no longer among the living. End quote. The only one who seemed to accept the news with equanimity was Glushko, 
who matter-of-factly reported Kurlyov's death to a group with whom he was meeting before carrying on with their counsel. Leonid Brezhnev, now the Soviet head of state, had a decision to make. All the time that he had been instrumental in keeping the Soviets ahead and abreast of the Americans, Kurlyov's identity had never been revealed to the public. He was a mysterious figure who enjoyed no accolades or notoriety for his deeds. But that was about to change. Three days after Kurlyov's death, his true name was revealed to the public. Sergei Pavlovich Kurlyov, a hero of the Soviet Union. He lay in state in the House of Columns, where thousands of Soviet citizens filed past to catch a glimpse of the man who had ushered the USSR into the space age. Kurlyov lay inside a casket wreathed in red and covered with flowers which seemed to flow in from every corner of the nation. Pravda, the Soviet state newspaper, ran articles and pictures of him, singing his praises with the unbounded exuberance which is only really possible in a propaganda publication. Kurlyov was cremated and then handed a state funeral. Thousands took part marching in order under an ashen sky as soft flakes floated earthward. Yuri Gagarin carried his ashes, accompanied by other prominent members of the Soviet space program. The procession found its end in Red Square, where speeches and proclamations venerating the great chief designer rang from the old stone buildings. The final speaker of the ceremony was Yuri Gagarin. He summed up Kurlyov's achievements as such. Quote, the name of Sergei Pavlovich is linked with a whole epoch in the history of mankind. The first flights of the artificial satellites, the first flights to the moon and to the planets, the first flights by human beings into space, and the first emergence of a human being into free space. End quote. When the speeches concluded, Sergei Pavlovich Kurlyov was finally interred in the Kremlin Wall having been lauded by the public as he never knew in life. Nina bravely faced the public eye. She was Kurlyov's widow, and that brought her a great deal of unwanted attention. She was forced to endure in the public consciousness, unable to grieve in her own way, until all of that attention dried up almost all at once. Vasily Mishin searched through Kurlyov's desk and found a small box of trinkets which he kept there. He delivered them to Kurlyov's daughter, Natasha. There were photographs of her, as well as some scattered schoolbooks and a few other sundries. He had not been present for most of her childhood, but he had always kept that box of her things close. Right up to the end. The loss of Sergei Kurlyov marked a turning point for the Soviet space program and for the space race as a whole. There's no telling how history might have been different if Kurlyov had survived. But the Soviets are not out of the race yet. Next time, we're going to cover something a bit less dour. An interesting little chapter in the history of spaceflight that's often overlooked. We're going to discuss a man named Edward Mokuka Nokloso and the homespun space program he tried to put together in Zambia. Trust me, folks, this is one you won't want to miss. So I'll see you there. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. 
If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.